What a cold and frosty first half to this Polish whodunit. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of August's book Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk, translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones. So each month I take a book, I split it in two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'd love to know your thoughts on the book so far. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter nine, which starts the largest in the smallest of Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk. The title of the book comes from William Blake's Proverbs of Hell from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Quote, in seed time learn, in harvest teach, in winter enjoy, drive your car and your plough over the bones of the dead, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And each chapter of the book starts with a two-line bait quote. We start off the book with a protagonist, it's an elderly lady, and the only reason I know it's a lady is because on the blurb from the back of the book it does say that Janina Dzeszko is an eccentric woman in her 60s recounting the events. Anyway, she's woken in the middle of the night one snowy evening by Oddball, a neighbour, to learn that Bigfoot is dead. They live in a small hamlet, it's only three cottages, and everyone else leaves and goes to the city in October. Now, Bigfoot appears to be a neighbour who's died. Oddball heard his dark crying plaintively in the night, and they discover his body in a bizarre position. His death doesn't look natural, so they try to call the police. Quote, it's hard to believe that only yesterday I've been afraid of this person. I disliked him. To say I disliked him might be putting it too mildly. Instead, I should say that I found him repulsive. Horrible, in fact. I didn't even regard him as a human being. Now he was lying on the stained floor in his dirty underwear, small and skinny, limp and harmless. Just a piece of matter which some unimaginable processes had reduced to a fragile object, separated from everything else. It made me feel sad, horrified, for even someone as foul as he was did not deserve death. Who on earth does? The same fate awaits me too, and Oddball, and the deer outside. One day we shall all be nothing more than corpses. So that sets quite a sombre tone for the novel. This Bigfoot character is a poacher who thinks the forest is his own, and he's pretty nasty to animals and he sets inhumane snares. Quote, This forest nurtured this little goblin. She's not happy that Oddball wants to move the body. She says, quote, I think we should wait for the police. But Oddball had already made space on the folding couch and was rolling up the sleeves of his sweater. He gave me a piercing look with those pale eyes of his. You wouldn't want to be found like that, would you? In such a state, it's inhuman. Oh yes, the human body is most definitely inhuman, especially a dead one. Wasn't it a sinister paradox that now we had to deal with Bigfoot's body, that he'd left us this final trouble, us, his neighbours, whom he'd never respected, never liked and cared about? To my mind, death should be followed by the annihilation of matter. That would be the best solution for the body, like this. Annihilated bodies would go straight back into the black holes whence they came. The souls would travel at the speed of light into the light, if such a thing as the soul exists." I love that little turn of phrase, a dead body is so inhuman. 
She's quite shocked at seeing him lying there. Those pale eyes beautifully evoked feelings by the narrator. And then this whole existential thought on the idea of souls. I'm really enjoying this beginning. She studies his feet and decides he can't be human. Cautiously, I unwound the repulsive foot wrappings and saw his feet, she says. They astonish me. I have always regarded the feet as the most intimate and personal part of our bodies. It is in the feet that all knowledge of mankind lies hidden. The body sends them a weighty sense of who we really are and how we relate to the earth. It's in the touch of the earth, at its point of contact with the body, that the whole mystery is located. The fact that we're built of elements of matter while also being alien to it, separated from it. The feet, those are our plugs into the socket. And now those naked feet gave me proof that his origin was different. He couldn't have been human. He must have been some sort of nameless form. One of the kind that, as Blake tells us, melts metals into infinity, changes order into chaos. Perhaps he was a sort of devil. Devilish creatures are always recognised by their feet. They stamp the earth with a different seal. She comments that she has never seen feet that look like his. As she dresses him, quote, like a form of caress, they discover a bone in his mouth. Oddball believes he must have choked, although blood is apparent in his mouth. And now I'm thinking, does blood appear in your mouth when you choke? Perhaps. I'm not sure. I trust this character. I, I'm not sure that I want him to, to move the body. And now he's jumping to conclusions about his death. Perhaps I'm just being cynical here. Let's wait and see. There's certainly a big question. Did he really choke on a bone? Now, one of the fingers of the body refuses to lie flat. The protagonist imagines the body saying, now pay attention. There's something you're not seeing here. The crucial starting point of a process that's hidden from you, but that's worthy of highest attention. She notices a deer that has been cruelly ensnared and butchered and eaten by Bigfoot. Quote, one creature had devoured another in the silence and stillness of the night. Nobody had protested, no thunderbolt had struck, and yet punishment had come upon the devil, though no one's hand had guided death. She's clearly concerned for the welfare of animals. And she finds his identity card and some photos that anger her and make her cry. So we've got a big question here. What were those photographs that she found in his jaw? Finally, our main protagonist is addressed as Mrs. Dejesco, so her sex is confirmed. Oddball calls his son to tell him of the situation and then calls the police. And I think it's interesting that the sex of the main protagonist would have been such a mystery unless I'd read the blurb at the back. There's nothing to say that the main protagonist was a female right until the end of the chapter. Anyway, she goes to Oddball's house, quote, Everything in here was clean and bright, warm and cosy. What a joy it is in life when you happen to have a clean, warm kitchen. It's never happened to me. I have never been good at keeping order around me. Too bad I'm reconciled to it now. Now Janina reflects on names when they think about what to call Bigfoot's emaciated dog. She believes in personal names that fit your feelings towards a person. It's interesting that Bigfoot was given his name because of his large footprints in the snow. Remember how his feet were very important, the feet of Bigfoot, when she saw him dead. They reminded her of the devil. It's also interesting, I think, how I was just complaining about not knowing her name at the start to deduce if she was female. And the narrator writes of names, quote, I try my best never to use first names and surnames, but prefer epithets that come to mind of their own accord the first time I see a person. I'm sure this is the right way to use language. 
And then she goes on to discuss how she named Bigfoot. It suggested itself to me when I saw his footprints in the snow. To begin with, Obwell had called him Shaggy, but then he borrowed Bigfoot from me. All it means is that I chose the right name for him. Now, I perhaps disagree with her idea on naming. I think it causes you to impose your own ideas on who a person is based on first impressions, and it doesn't allow for any change or movement, whereas a disassociated name is like a blank slate. For a novelist, naming in this way is a great idea, but for real people, I'm not so sure. What do you think? In fact, she even says that she can't call Obball Obball to his face. Quote, I realised I'd never have the courage to call him Oddball to his face. When you're such close neighbours, you don't need names to address each other. Whenever I see him weeding his small garden as I'm passing by, I don't need his name to speak to him. It's a special degree of familiarity. Now, Janina reflects on the harshness of the winter from October to April, often reaching minus 20, and how she'd like to be closer to Oddball. She believes he may have worked in a circus and wonders whether he was an accountant or an acrobat and believes that his firewood's, quote, beautiful spiral order indicates the former. She's certainly impressed with his neatness compared to her, quote, the flowers in his garden are neat and tidy, standing straight and slender as if they'd been to the gym. She's been impressed with his order previously and even berated herself for not having it, quote, I've never been good at keeping order around me. I just wonder if this perceived fault in herself and perceived strength in him turns out to be a key revelatory moment in the story, especially if his organisation helped to facilitate any improper behaviour, i.e. the murder. That we will see later, I guess. I'm being very cynical, I know. I just don't trust this oddball character. She's definitely got a thing for drawers, and she eyes up Oddball's drawers as he gets a teaspoon out. Remember her searching through Bigfoots and finding those photos? So I've got another big question here. Is there a chance that these two misfits will get together? Either form a romantic or at least a closer friendship. She notices he has a sewing machine. I wonder what he uses it for. I wish Janine had spotted the size of the needle to indicate whether it was just used for clothes maybe or something more industrial. Although living in the middle of nowhere in Poland, you're and the need to keep your clothes in a state of good repair, I guess. Anyway, he doesn't talk much. She puts it down to something that she calls testosterone autism, and I'll talk more on that later. And her anti-science, maybe sexist or ageist thinking, perhaps. She tells him that she called the police on him in the past for the poor treatment of Bigfoot's dog, who's emaciated, and the poaching, but that the police didn't respond. And Obbul says, quote, are you trying to say it's a good thing he's dead? It's a bit of a leading question. Could she be the killer? She then recounts her trip to the police commandant who prejudges her a bit like she does when naming people. <laughs> Discuss. Quote, To his mind, I was definitely a little old lady and once my accusatory speech was gathering strength, a silly old bag, crazy old crone or mad woman, I could sense his disgust as he watched my movements and cast negative judgments on my taste. He didn't like my hairstyle, or my clothes, or my lack of subservience. He scrutinised my face with growing dislike. She asked the policeman for his date of birth so that she can calculate his horoscope. Now, is there another reason she wants to do his date of birth? She wanted to know Bigfoot's date of birth to work out his score. Quite intriguing. And that very evening, she rescues Bigfoot's dog herself. But the next day, he returns to Bigfoot back to the, quote, 
sinister workings of bondage. Then we go back to the present and we're in Ogbor's kitchen. He comments, quote, I don't share your trust in the authorities. You have to do everything yourself. It's another perhaps sinister reference to the fact that he may have killed Bigfoot or it's a red herring. As she was recording her experience with the police, she also thinks of, quote, her little girls. Now, I'm assuming these are human girls, but perhaps they're an animal of some kind. Now, some men arrive in Lumberjacks. They're friends of Bigfoot. They ask Janina to open the cottage to allow them to mourn his death while they wait for the priest. And she's relieved he did have some friends. The police arrive and Oddball's son is one of the police. He berates Oddball for moving the body. And she reflects on how she enjoys the weather channel and how she wishes there was a programme that showed the movement of the stars. She's very into astrology. Taking stock of the narration so far, she's very keen, Janina, to impose her ideas on us, how one should name people, the proper care of animals, the importance of astrology. There's much more prescriptive narrative than in Gravity's Rainbow, I think. Anyway, continuing the narrative, she buries the remains of the deer in Bigfoot's house in the garden and then examines her neighbour's properties. Quote, I spent the winter here for them, protected their houses against the cold and damp and minded their fragile possessions. In this way, I relieved them of taking part in the darkness. Now she looks back over the landscape and with that prescriptive, definite, unbending view of the world thinks, quote, Sorrow is an important word for defining the world. It lies at the foundations of everything. It is the fifth element, the quintessence. She imagines her environment, quote, Transylvania, a village with broken ski lifts and a church. She also imagines Oxheart Corner, another place. So it's not just she who makes up names for things. There's an unspecified character called Dizzy, who is named so because, quote, he once saw a box of offal fall off a lorry coming from the slaughterhouse that belongs to a local bigwig and cow hearts were spilled across the road. So we begin her tour of inspection of houses. And I'm assuming that this is how she makes her money. We begin with, quote, the professor and his wife. This is quite an old-fashioned view of a relationship. It's her favourite home and sometimes their children come to have parties there. Quote, with its shutters open, illuminated and filled with loud music, the house seemed a little dazed and bewildered. One could say that those gaping window holes made it look rather empty-headed, recovered as soon as they left. I love that animism. The house is a character. It reminds me of Forster's Howard's End, if you read that one alongside me. So many houses with so much human character. Continuing on, she takes care that the snow on their roof doesn't build up, and then she goes to the writer woman's home. Quote, she looked like a survivor from Pompeii, as if she were covered in ash, and she worries about reading a book of hers in case she is described. Quote, what if I found myself described in them in a way that I couldn't fathom, or my favourite places, which for her are something completely different from what they are to me? In a way, people like her, those who wield a pen, can be dangerous. At once a suspicion of fakery springs to mind, that such a person is not him or herself, but an eye that's constantly watching, and whatever it sees, it changes into sentences. In the process, it strips reality of its most essential quality, its inexpressibility. This reminds me of her fear at seeing those photographs. It also seems like Janina is being hypocritical, because by naming people and things on her first impressions, she is, quote, stripping them of their most essential qualities, their inexpressibility. 
What do you think? Do you agree? Anyway, she thinks of the grey lady's feet. That's the name she's given for the writer. Quote, If only I could have seen her feet, perhaps it would have turned out that she was not a human being either, but some other form of life. All these feet references remind me of those very first words in the book that had me in stitches. Quote, I am already at an age and additionally in a state where I must always wash my feet thoroughly before bed in the event of having to be removed by an ambulance in the night. Feet are obviously a really important life symbol for Janina. She describes how the Wellers, with their two, quote, obese pampered children, fit their name beautifully, so she doesn't need to come up with a new one. Quote, they really were the people from the well. They'd fallen into it a long ago and had now arranged their lives at the bottom of it, thinking the well was the entire world. She looks after the Inners' home too, and they don't need a name because Mr Innard has bought loads of land, believing that, quote, we're living on a gold mine here, gold that's known as granite. She then describes the hunting stands that she detests. They're called pulpits in Polish. And the fact that the sun sets on the Czech Republic. Now, what is her relationship with that country? Is it a lost love? She's mentioned it a few times now. In the previous chapter, she says how she loves crossing into the Czech border because she used to be denied it. Quote, I love crossing borders. More on that later. We'll try to get to the bottom of that. She talks of her love of astrology and says that in this new era, quote, no one has the courage to think up anything new. She mentions this Dizzy character again. Not quite sure who he is yet. She seems to be obsessed with trying to work out when people will die using astrology. And she states that she knows the date of her own death and that makes her feel free. She also remembers her two girls when they were excited by the snow and then thinks that she should see Dr. Ali when she feels tears on her cheeks. Now, are these tears on her cheeks unacknowledged anger or sadness? It's interesting that she blames them on her ailments. Later that day, she passes a load of poachers with guns. And when she says she'll call the police, they laugh and she notices the police commandant being part of the group. She lashes out in anger and lunges at one of the men. She's then forcibly escorted back to her car. She goes to a kindly doctor about her ailments who prescribes interesting, perhaps not entirely scientific, concoctions for his patients. She wants to be anaesthetised to, quote, stop me feeling anything or worrying. Now, Dizzy comes around every Friday. Finally, I'm hoping we'll find out something about this elusive Dizzy character. His real name is Dionzi, and he's allergic to lots of food, so she has to prepare carefully. He's busily translating Blake into Polish. Quote, Once long ago, he'd be my pupil. Now he had reached the age of 30, but in fact he was no different in any way from the Dizzy who had accidentally locked himself in the lavatory during his secondary school graduation English exam, as a result of which he had failed it. He'd been too embarrassed to call for help. Perhaps she was an English teacher. There's certainly a big age difference here. They bumped into each other a few years back in the local town where he was working as an IT specialist for the police. And she helps him with his Blake translations, but thinks, quote... I didn't like poetry. All the poems ever written seemed to be unnecessarily complicated and unclear. I couldn't understand why these revelations weren't recorded properly in prose. Now, as Dizzy leaves, he notices a light near the pass and Janina reluctantly follows him and they find the police commander's car alongside a shallow well surrounded by lots of small footprints wherein lies a body. 
it's the body of the police commandant and Janina thinks it's the animals taking revenge and they're taken in by the police and questioned by Oddball's son Blackcoat who is also a police officer. She discovers her mother in the boiler room of her house that evening and there's a lovely turn of phrase when Janina comments quote I was angry with her for she had died a long time ago and that's not how long gone mothers should behave. So her mother berates her, quote, how did you end up here? This is no place for you. Janina slams the door on her mother and the chapter closes. Now she thinks this might be the last year she'll spend winter here and go back to her flat in the city. She reflects that if Blake could see the Czech town of Nashod, he would say, quote, there are some places in the universe where the fall has not occurred, the world has not turned upside down, and Eden still exists. Here, mankind is not governed by the rules of reason, stupid and strict, but by the heart and intuition. The people do not indulge in idle chatter, parading what they know, but create remarkable things by applying their imagination. The state ceases to impose the shackles of daily oppression, but helps people to realise their hopes and dreams. A man is not just a cog in the system, not just playing a role, but a free creature. She certainly loves Czech. It can't be just because the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, right? I'd like to know the answer to that. She's invigorated by fixing up the writer's house that has sprung a leak in its gutter and she's been suffering from pain in her leg. But when she sets about fixing it, she says, quote, it's a complete mystery that every challenge triggers vital forces within us. I really did feel better. I forgot about the pain. She then asks for Oddball's help with the writer's gutter and Oddball says that the autopsy states that Bigfoot merely choked on a bone. Boo. So there goes my theory, murder. Anyway, they discuss the police commandant's death and Janina tells Oddball that she thinks he was murdered by a pack of deers. I think she's got some very strange ideas. The postman arrives with a summons for Janina to the police station. He notes how he thinks the police commandant had become involved in corruption and the innards restaurant called Casablanca is a front for a slave trade. And Janina thinks, I felt sorry for him. For once upon a time, he must have been one of the innocent too. But now his heart was flooded with bile. His life must be hard indeed. And it must have been all the bitterness that was making him so angry. And then she goes on to quote Blake. Quote, God made man happy and rich, but cunning made the innocent poor. Now she spends time with Dizzy translating Blake. He knows quite a few details of the case through his work as an IT contractor with their systems. The commandment had died of a blow to the temple, more than just falling into a well, though there's no murder weapon. He was under the influence of alcohol. He had 20,000 zlotties divided into two wads, and there were also some strange hoof-like prints that may have possibly been there before. Now there are rumours he may have just fallen into the well trying to hide the money, but both Dizzy and Janina are not convinced. Anyway, the police interrogate Janina and Oddball. He says that the commandant always drove along side roads drunk. Now, interestingly, Janina feels she can't back up this statement. Could Oddball possibly be guilty in this crime? Janina feels old and she isn't sure how many more winters she can take. She then, in the very next paragraph, reflects on the bird life around her. She comments on the field fairs who move, quote, like one large piece of living fretwork in the air and who defecate 
on predators in swarms, causing the predator self-loathing and the other members of its tribe to loathe it. Now, is this a subtle comment on how she feels her position in the world is being undermined, perhaps by her aging body, the oppressive winter, or maybe the reaction of other members of society, like the police, to her thoughts? Although she doesn't compare her inner feelings openly to the field first by putting the two ideas side by side, it must be a subconscious comparison, surely. Is it that the author is really cleverly showing that she can't admit to herself that this is how she feels about herself, that she too feels self-loathing? Perhaps it's definitely a discussion point. Moving on in the narrative, there's a fox that she's named Consul. He leads her to the body of a dead boar killed by poachers. Their footprints around the body, and it reminds me of the footprints around the police commandant. The boar had been trying to escape to the Czech Republic. Now remember, this is her utopia land, and more on that later. She reports it to the police, but they're not interested at all. And when they suggest she tells the vet, she tells them the vet is one of the poachers. And then she sees her mother again. This time it's in a dream. The narrator seems to have forgotten that she previously saw her mother as a figment of her imagination, the boiler room, i.e. not a dream. Quote, she was evasive as if she knew an embarrassing secret. Maybe a guilty secret. She also sees her grandmother. She has a humorous uh, method of exorcism. Quote, the old method for dealing with bad dreams is to tell them aloud above the toilet bowl and then flush them away. She compares the construction of one's own horoscope. Quote, here before me lay the blueprint for the person I am, my actual self, in a basic written record. She goes on, but at the same time it's a form of imprisonment in space, like a tattooed prison number. There's no escaping it. Therefore, I'm convinced that we should get to know our prison very well. Now, this comment really reminds me of Brake's mind-forged manacles, if you know the poem London. No wonder the narrator has such an affinity with Blake and she's friends with the Blake scholar. Continuing the narrative, we have some Janina backstory. She designed bridges and then became a teacher and then she harps on about how wonderful astrology is and tells Dizzy, who politely listens, how the deaths of the commandant was written in the stars. And I'm thinking, come on, let's get into the story of Janina. What are the answers to those awesome questions that we had previously? And now we find out that she's an active teacher teaching a whole load of kids. And I didn't see that coming in the narrative. It's almost like the author suddenly decided to add another side to her. But I've discussed this with a few friends. Sophie, who's reading the book alongside me. And she said that she liked the fact that this new side to Janina suddenly appears. It's a bit like someone you feel like you know and then someone suddenly something bam you, you've learned something new so I guess I just didn't enjoy that sudden newness anyway she goes into the town and feels that everyone is quote fragile impermanent she goes into good news which is a clothes shop so named because of the shopkeeper quote there are some people at whom one only has to glance for one's throat to tighten and one's eyes to fill with tears of emotion. These people make one feel as if a stronger memory of our former innocence remains in them, as if they were a freak of nature, not entirely battered by the fall. Perhaps they are messengers, like the servants who find a lost prince who is unaware of his origins. Show him the robe that he wore in his native country and remind him how to return home. Now, Good News' shop is like a hub for the town where people meet. One day she hears of white foxes that have been released onto the plateau by Inard. 
According to another man who wears tracksuits, quote, it was the mafia. They were importing furs illegally from Russia using his farm as a cover. He hadn't settled up with the Russian mafia, so he got scared and did a runner. Now, Dizzy gets an offer from the local paper to publish his translations of Blake. And we hear about the police. They believe the commander's money was a bribe and he was on the way back from a meeting with Inerd. Dizzy says the weapon that must have been used to kill the commandant had traces of animal blood on it. And Janina and Dizzy call at Honda's bookshop and pick up Blake's selected letters. She particularly enjoys Blake's comment on discipline. In this case, Sir Francis Bacon's recommendation of discipline in mountainous places to cure sickness. He says, quote, No discipline will turn one man into another, even in the least particle. And there ends the first half. So the main questions from the first half, how did Bigfoot die? Was it really a chicken bone? It appears it was. But I was really convinced at the start that Oddball was covering up some murder. And also Janina didn't like him at all. So she was also a suspect in my mind. And what were those photographs that she found in his jaw? She hasn't mentioned them since page 25. And we're now up to halfway, which is page 137. And they caused her such anger. And is there a chance that these two misfits will get together, Janina and Oddball, either form a romantic or at least a closer friendship? And who is this dizzy guy? Well, that's been answered. He is an ex-student. How does she know the date of her own death? Well, she learns it because of her fascination with horoscopes. So she built her own horoscope uh, chart, so that's how she knows her death. Another question, who killed the police commandment and how and why? And there are a few clues so far. Those strange footprints around the body, the fact that he was found in a shallow well. And Dizzy says that the police believe that the commandant's money was a bribe and he was on the way back from a meeting with Inard. He also says that the weapon that must have been used to kill the commandant had traces of animal blood in it. It's all pointing, I think, to Inard so far, but surely that's a red herring. Or am I looking too deeply and treating it like a whodunit where the genre is maybe something else. And why is she so in love with the Czech Republic? Quote, in my somnolent state, I also thought about the Czech Republic. The border would appear in my mind and that gentle, beautiful country beyond it. Over there, everything is lit up by the sun, gilded with light. The fields breathe evenly at the foot of the table mountains, surely created purely for the purpose of looking pretty. The roads are straight, the streams are clear. Mouflon and fallow deer graze in pens by the houses. Leverets frolic in the corner and little bells are tied to the combines as a gentle way of scaring them off to a safe distance. The people aren't in a hurry and don't compete against each other all the time. They don't go chasing after pipe dreams. They're happy with who they are and what they have. And are we going to see any more fleeting mentions of her two girls? What is the history there? All really intriguing questions that I really hope I get to the bottom of in the second half. Have you got any pressing questions about this first half? I'd love to hear them and I'd love to share them too. Let me know. Anyway, there were some really interesting ideas to come out of this narrative in the first half. Here are a few of my favourites. First one, testosterone autism. What an interesting and funny idea. Listen to Janina's theory. Quote, it's hard work talking to some people, most often males. I have a theory about it. With age, many men come down with testosterone autism, the symptoms of which are a gradual decline in social intelligence and capacity for interpersonal communication, as well as a reduced ability to formulate thoughts. 
The person beset by this ailment becomes taciturn and appears to be lost in contemplation. He develops an interest in various tools and machinery and he's drawn to the Second World War and the biographies of famous people, mainly politicians and villains. His capacity to read novels almost entirely vanishes. Testosterone and autism disturbs the character's psychological understanding. I think Oddball was suffering from this ailment. Very sexist thinking, Janine, there. And I'm not sure this is backed up by the science. It's also ages. Definitely an amusing piece of pseudoscience. Some armchair philosophising. The other interesting thing that I noticed in the book is unreliable narrator she feels pain but she doesn't really acknowledge it remember when she was excited by the snow and then she thinks she should see dr ali when she feels tears on her cheeks are the tears on her cheeks unacknowledged anger or sadness and it's interesting that she blames them on her quote ailments and then she hardly mentions her two girls they obviously cause her great pain and she's also unwilling to explore the anger she feels at seeing bigfoot's photos at least not to the reader. A very important theme so far has been the welfare of animals. The narrator clearly shows how cruelty to animals goes against the world order and is unnatural, especially when we saw the deer's head in Bigfoot's house and she commented, quote, one creature had devoured another in the silence of the night. She's clearly distressed that this could happen. And she also compares a country's attitude to animals to their enlightenment. Quote, it's animals show the truth about country, I said. It's attitude towards animals. If people behave brutally towards animals, no form of democracy is ever going to help them. In fact, nothing will at all. We also have these beautiful descriptions of nature. She has an understanding of the wildlife around her, of the field fairs and the foxes and the magpies. For example, when she's talking about magpies, quote, I also watched a pair of magpies and was surprised that they had ventured all the way to the plateau. But I know that these birds spread their range faster than others. And in the near future, they'll be everywhere as pigeons are today. She goes on. I watched them as they bathed in the puddle of melted snow. They gave me sidelong glances, but clearly weren't afraid of me. For they boldly went on spattering the water with their wings and dipping their heads in it. Seeing their joy, no one could doubt how much fun a bath of this kind must be. She obviously has a deep understanding of her natural environment. And astrology is also a big theme in this. All the way through the novel, Janina is testing her theories about the stars, the positions, and how it can affect humanity. She's quite keen to find out when people's death days are. And she wants to see if the TV schedules are created by astrologists as well. She says, quote, The connections between them are distinct and plain to see. So in terms of who may have killed the commandant, there's a couple of things. Oddball, remember, I thought that he was guilty. He moved the body. He comments to Janina about taking vengeance into his own hands. And he's very neat, which I imagine someone who's going to be committing a murder, that would be a really good thing to have. But also, what Janina's guilt, she says that the devil has given him payback for killing that deer. Is that her guilt? And she also says she loves crossing borders. Quote, a dozen times or several dozen times, I'd amused myself like that for half an hour playing the game of crossing the border. It gave me pleasure because I could remember the time when it wasn't possible. I love crossing borders. So she's very happy to step out of her comfort zone. Is she also happy to try to step out of her comfort zone and murder a next door neighbour who is clearly horrible to animals? Something she clearly loves. 
And those photos, are they proof of some misdeed that justifies his death? She's clearly crossed some kind of metaphorical border in this novel. And I'm looking forward to finding out what. She does say, quote, but no one's hand had guided death. And I'm thinking, why would she say this if she didn't think it was natural? Anyway, a really enjoyable first half of a novel so far. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Gravity's Rainbow. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. S. Penkajif said, Gravity's Rainbow is a massive novel that takes quite a bit of decoding and deboning in order to devour. But this is precisely what Pynchon wants and requires of us. This is a book that more or less requires a second reading just to grasp all that it has to say. The first is just a test of survival. The agglomeration of ideas are too much to chew and savour on one trip. And there's so much ambiguity present that, like Joyce's Ulysses, he intends the scholars to dissect and analyse this novel for years and years to come. In the novel, the Zone members gather to become capitalists of the rocket, quote, to be scholar magicians of the Zone, with somewhere in it a text to be picked to pieces, annotated, explicated, till all is squeezed limp to its last drop. This book is Pynchon's rocket, quote, our Torah, our darkness, which he cast forth into the 1970s literary scene as a harbinger of destruction to all preconceived notions of literature. Pynchon in this way is not all that unlike the rocket launchers, hidden far away, out of sight, in his reclusiveness, avoiding photographic surveillance, sending his rocket into a brave new world. Now, Bruce said, quote, Self-indulgent and sometimes silly, but so much brilliant imagination, storytelling, characterisation and use of language, they overshadow the negatives. Still, could probably be a better novel with about 150 pages cut. Now, when I emailed Bruce, he responded saying that after 15 years of reading it, he still thought it was one of his favourite books. And then Jonas wrote, quote, I've just finished reading this juggernaut. It felt I'd been reading it for centuries. In spite of this, it never felt boring. It was for sure a bigger challenge and I take some pride in it. Definitely this very unorthodox novel did something to me. I feel different. Is the light bulb in my kitchen friend with the light bulb in the bathroom? Where did all the dodos go? Will I be able to conquer the Sephirots and finally end my spiritual journey? Wait, are those kazoos? If none of the above mentioned questions are part of the repertoire of your personal paranoia, you should definitely read this book. Yours truly, Byron the Bulb. Brett Talley said, quote, It approaches impossibility to review Gravity's Rainbow in any coherent way, much as it is impossible to read the book in any coherent way. Gravity's Rainbow is without question an accomplishment. It displays a supreme knowledge of history, culture, sexual dysfunction, humour, rhyme scheme, and just about every other discipline, literary and otherwise. Bringing all that together in one book is something to applaud without doubt. And yet, like so many great works of postmodern art, it's hard to say that Gravity's Rainbow is a pleasure to experience. Most readers are likely to discard it in frustration, and few can be said to actually enjoy it. Read it for the cultural experience and sense of accomplishment, but don't expect to like it. And then Paquita said, quote, What Pynchon has created here is like a goddamn kaleidoscope. Every time you look in, you're going to see something else. It will give it up and give it up and then beg for some more. All it takes is a minor flip of the wrist and boom, an all-new explosion of madness. I dare you to read this book and not make a single sexual reference while reviewing it. Shiny steel, roaring rocket, scat, scat, boom. She goes on to say how laugh out loud funny the book is. 
And Nathan said, it's definitely worth a read if you're into it, but you will need to take it slow at first because the tangents are really world-class. Two people would be talking and then in the middle of it, there will be like four pages describing something that feels completely outside the narrative. I'm giving it five stars because among the books I've read, it's one of a kind and really great read. People say it's pretentious, but I don't think any book with musical interludes every couple of pages is pretentious. I felt like I was at the Wonga factory. Thanks very much for those comments. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading. You just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Drive Your Power Over the Bones of the Dead in two weeks, and that's the 26th of August, September's podcast will be all about The Corrections by Jonathan Franson. So get that one ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your podcast app. Thanks, anyway. I look forward to discussing the final part of Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead in two weeks. See you then.